Philippians chapter 1 in our Bibles. Philippians chapter 1. And just uh, for your information, there is a handout for the overnight teen activity, and they do have a departure date, 3.30 p.m. on Tuesday. So you do have to pick up your child, all right, or grandchild, 3.30 on, on Tuesday. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're at. And I would begin by asking you a question this morning. Has God, has God saved, has he saved you? Have you been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ? And, uh, and we might ask, well, saved from what? Well, saved from sin. Have you been saved from sin? Have you been saved from the penalty of sin, which the Bible says is hell, and really eternal torment and suffering forever. So has God saved you? And then if he has, if he has saved you, are you living up to the gospel? The way you're living your life, the way I'm living my life, are we living our lives up to the gospel? And what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, It is his burial. And it is that he rose again the third day. And uh, that is the gospel. And we might, we could ask the question, well, Pastor, what do you mean by, am I living my life up to the gospel, up to the standard of the gospel? How is it possible for me to live my life? I mean, what does Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection 2,000 years ago have to do with the way I live my life today? And we'll answer that question this morning. But are we living our lives up to the standard of the gospel? I want you to look at the passage this morning, Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 22. i read down through verse 30, we'll pray, and then I want to look at uh, a few verses quickly, and then we'll settle into just a few verses in the time that we have this morning. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 22. We'll start in verse 21. He says, for to me, Paul writes, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I know not, I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, to keep living on this earth, is more needful for you, he writes to this church. Verse 25 says, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Verse 27, and this will be the main passage this morning, our text. Verse 27, he writes, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray together. We'll look at this passage of scripture and really what it is that God wants of us. Okay, what God wants of us. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word this morning. I pray that you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. Father, I pray that uh, we would know whether we're saved or not. And if we are, Father, I pray that we would live up to the gospel, which really would mean to be a Christian, to be someone who is selfless, someone who's willing to lay down their life, someone who's willing to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, we need to do this in these days in which we're living just as this church needed to do it 2,000 years ago. Father, bless your word in our hearts, I pray. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Look back again at verse, verses uh, 22. Uh, verse 22, first of all, I want to walk through just a few of these verses to give you a little bit of the context. Verse 22, Paul writes, he says, But if I live in the flesh, I may be living my life on this earth. I'm, I'm alive in this, in this life. I have this flesh on me. If I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Well, what is he talking about when he says this is the fruit of my labor? What, what, what's this referring to? Well, look back up to verse 20, and we see what he's referring to. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also, and here's what he was referring to, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be life or by death. So when Paul says in verse 22, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. What he's saying for me to live on this earth is for Christ to be magnified, for for the Lord Jesus Christ to be seen. And this is what Paul wanted so desperately for this church at Philippi. And this is what God desires for every single one of us who are his children living today. He wants Jesus Christ to be magnified in our bodies. Now, let me stop and ask you the question. Is Jesus Christ being magnified in when other people look at your life? Um, I don't I don't know that I have a magnifying glass. My children do. A couple of them do. And they love them. You know, you ever I remember my dad holding one up to his face, you know, we think it was funny, you know, and. And it would make part of his face, his eyeball look really big or really small or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, the children will go around with their magnifying glasses because something that is hard to see becomes very obvious. It's magnified. It becomes big and you can study it and you can see it. It's, it's right there. Something that you could hardly see now becomes very visible. And Paul here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is able to say, God has me here on this earth so that Jesus Christ will become very obvious, obviously visible and seen by all those who are around me. And this is what God wants for you and for me. He wants your grandchildren, when they're around you, he wants Christ to be magnified, to be obviously seen through your life to your grandchildren. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't, isn't that something you would desire? Not, not that they would just think grandma's awesome. You know, she has the best popsicles and she makes the best spaghetti. But no, but that, but that Christ would be seen in, in, in this life to the point where even after you've left this earth and gone on to be with your Lord and Savior, that when they talk about grandma or grandpa or they talk about pastor, that it would be the Lord Jesus Christ that they would remember. And Paul here is talking about this, and he says in verse 22, but if I live in the flesh, if I God keeps me here on this earth, this is the fruit of my labor. And it is work, isn't it? You can't just coast through life and not fight the good fight of faith. You can't just go with the flow of your flesh and Christ be magnified. It actually takes work. You have to make hard choices to do the right thing. And you have to disagree with your flesh. And there's a war that takes place even within us for this to be the case. It's going to take a lot of work. He says, yet what I shall choose, I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Sometimes in this life, whether it be a physical trial or a spiritual trial, earthly trials, sometimes we as God's people, knowing the word of God and having a blessed hope that heaven is our home, where there's no more sin, there's no more suffering, and there are no more tears, Sometimes we as God's people, we look around us 
at our world and even look at ourselves sometimes and say, you know what, I really, I'm, I'm all done with this. I, I'm ready to go be with the Lord. I'm ready to go be with him. I'm looking forward to that. And Paul says here, he says, I want to be with my Lord. It's better to be with him. And I'm in, I'm in this straight betwixt two, and I don't know exactly what God's going to do with me as far as the when. I want to be with my Lord and Savior, but for your sakes, church at Philippi, he's talking to this church, this particular church. He says, it's better for you that I stay, that God keeps me here on this earth. Why? So that Christ can be magnified. And specifically about Christ, there's some things that God wanted to magnify or to reveal to the church of Philippi, some specific characteristics about Christ, some characteristics like being selfless, willing to lay down one's own life for the well-being of others, sacrificial, making personal sacrifice for others. And, and, and what Christ had done already in dying on the cross for the sins of the whole world, the Apostle Paul was walking in Christ. He was suffering. He was being persecuted. He was being wrongly imprisoned and wrongly accused. He was suffering, and he, yet he was willingly laying down his life, his life, giving up some personal liberties for the well-being of God's people. And Christ was being magnified. The church at Philippi couldn't help but notice Christ. They couldn't help but seeing Christ in the life of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 25, and he says, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. So you're going to grow because of my suffering, Paul is saying. He says in verse 26 that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Now, for most of chapter one, Paul, if you read it, is talking about he's talking in the first person. And really, he's been giving a personal testimony of joy despite suffering. He's talking about how he's been able to be joyful and hope in the Lord even when things are not going his way. In verses 27 down through verse 30, Paul sh Paul's message shifts to applying the spiritual truths to his readers. So the beginning part, he's giving his testimony. Now he begins to apply these truths that he's learning in his life to those that are reading it. And looking at verse 27, the beginning part, he says, Only... Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Only. What, what is the word only? Um, only. It's, a, it's in a crucial, emphatic position in the verse. It's right at the beginning. Only. And it means that Paul has boiled down his argument to one main thought. It's only one thing you need to do. There's one thing we need to focus upon. And what is he about to, in other words, what he's about to say is the bottom line for our Christian lives, for our local assembly of believers. I'm talking about a church, those of us who God has joined together. And he says this in verse 27, only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ. And the word conversation um, means to behave as a citizen. Now, he's not talking about a conversation in the way that we talk. That's not the word conversation here. We use, it, we use the word conversation that way. I had a conversation with my wife. I had a conversation with my children. I had a conversation with you. That's not how this word is meant to be used here. It, it, it's not in the sense of words, but in works. Not of language, but of life. And the word translated as conversation comes from a Greek word, polis. We get our politics come, can come out of that. It, it actually has the idea of citizenship. And the ancient Greeks understood the polis 
as a state or the city state, a free state, and not, not just a place to live, but a partnership with their fellow citizens to obtain the highest possible good for all of their society. And they had a very real sense of their personal responsibility for the good of the state or the city. This was unusual. Greeks, this was kind of new to them. It was new with them, I should say, and it, was, it would be carried on by the Romans to a degree as well. Um, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of this thinking before that time. There was a lot of, hey, do, what, do what's best for you. If you need something, you need a horse, you go raid the, your neighbor, take his horse, and there you don't need a horse anymore. You got one. He doesn't have one anymore, but you got one. And so this kind of way of thinking was new. And the Greeks, where in the New Testament is written in the Greek language, or was written in the Greek language, Philippi was a Roman colony, almost 800 miles from Rome. And they were Roman citizens who had the rights and privileges of Rome. They were governed and protected by Roman law. You, you might remember when Paul was wrongfully imprisoned in Philippi, about 10 years prior to this, uh, him writing this, he reminded the politicians of their illegal actions under Roman law. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 35, the Bible records that incident. And it says this in Acts 16 and verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant saying, let those men go. When they realized this is a Rome, these are Roman citizens, they thought we've really made a big mistake here. We're in big trouble. We've, we've uh, beaten openly a Roman citizen. We've broken the law. And when they realized that, they sent somebody else to let them go. Go ahead and get rid of them. And uh, verse 36, it says, And the keeper of the prison told this saying to, the, to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privately, privily? I don't think so. Nay, verily, Paul says, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. (laughs) So I say all that to say this. As Paul's writing to this church, he says, he's talking about that root word for conversation, uh, the whole word is polituomai, comes from polis or city, state. He's talking to them about being citizens, but not of Greece, not of Rome, not of the United States of America, but citizens of heaven. And he's, he's appealing to something that they would have understood. You need to live up to something higher than being a citizen of Greece or of Rome, Philippi, the province of Rome, or a citizen of the United States. You as children of God, I as a child of God, have a responsibility to live up to something higher than the laws of our land. Now, not many cities were privileged with Roman citizenship, and those that were, they took it very, very seriously. The Philippians understood exactly what Paul was talking about. Not Roman citizenship. Not earthly citizenship. He's talking about heavenly citizenship. And Paul is saying that he wants our behavior as a church, corporately, as a church. When you have multiple believers and they assemble, that's called a church. A believer that is not assembling is not within the church. A church is an assembly of believers. Okay, this is important. That's why part of the reason why we gather. It's not that a person can't be saved without attending or assembling with a, a body of believers, but a church is when a body assembles. It's important to get together. And Paul is saying that he wants our behavior as a church and in our lives as individual believers to measure up to the gospel that we believe. He wants... He wants the way we live to measure up, even in a pagan culture, even in the society in which we're living. And Paul was prepping these believers 
for some persecution that they were going to be facing. Paul himself had been going through and living through and enduring persecution, but even in that culture, Paul's saying, whether it's me, the Apostle Paul, or whether it's you, the church at Philippi, in this world in which we're living, it is the expectation of God Almighty for us to live up to the gospel that we say we believe. This is incredibly important in the day in which we're living. What is the gospel? It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that Jesus died, all who believed upon him, believe upon him, are freed from bondage to sin. In that he was buried, he took our sins away. We don't have we don't live in sin anymore. He's taken it away from us. And in that he rose from the dead. We were raised to to walk in newness of life, to live, to be able to live a life that is pleasing to God. Before the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it really was impossible to live a life as a whole that was pleasing to God. The gospel, the death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is admonishing these believers to conduct themselves, to live their lives in a manner that is proper For a citizen of heaven. Now, I'm a citizen of the United States of America. But my citizenship in the United States of America is temporary. We all understand that, right? There's going to come a day where I'm not going to be a citizen of the United States of America anymore. I'm not going to have to pay taxes anymore at some point. Right? And they're going to have to find somebody else to tax. That's okay. And I'm not going to have some of the benefits either, the protection that comes from being a citizen of the United States of America. So my citizenship for this nation, which I love so very much, is temporary. My citizenship of heaven is eternal. And it actually overrides. Because I'm a citizen of heaven, because the Spirit of God lives within me, because the Word of God directs me, it actually, God directs me as a citizen of heaven, to be a good, law-abiding citizen of the country in which I live. He says, live up to the gospel. Live up to the gospel. Behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the thought is that our behavior as a citizen of heaven should be in harmony with and appropriate to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look down to chapter 2 and verse 15. Chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul writes this to these believers. He says that ye may be blameless, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And he concedes, I understand that you're living in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. I understand that. And I want you to shine as lights in the world. And many of us would say, yes, that's what I want. It's not new. This is not a new concept. That's what I want. Well, how is that done? By being blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke. And Paul reiterates a similar thought. Our manner of life either helps or hinders the gospel. The way I live my life either helps or hinders the gospel. My attitude, what I think, what I communicate to others, either helps the gospel. It either magnifies Jesus Christ. Wow, that's who Christ is. Or it clouds it. And we have an opportunity in the day in which we're living. We have an incredible opportunity in the day in which we're living. How many of us would have said, Seth, if I could have chosen a time, this is a time, and I don't mean the good times, but some of the trying times that we're facing, I would, I want to go through these trying times. I want the stress. I want some of the fears that I've had to deal with. I'm so, you know, most of us would say, you know, I'll just pass. I'd prefer the, the easier path. 
But you know what? It's at times when things are difficult where Christ can be magnified even greater. Now is a wonderful time to live. It's a wonderful time to serve the Lord. It's a wonderful time to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. We We have a tremendous opportunity before us. So is the way we're living our lives hindering the gospel or helping it? Is the way that we're living our lives recommending the truth to others or is it making the truth repulsive? Our manner of life needs to be consistent with what we know about the gospel. The way we live our lives need to be consistent with what we preach and what we teach and what the Bible says about the gospel. So what are some characteristics of a church that is in harmony with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are some characteristics? Well, look at the passage in verse 27, the middle part. I notice, first of all, that a church that is living up to the gospel is standing together in one spirit. A church that is is living up to the gospel or magnifying Jesus Christ is standing together with one spirit. Now, do we all agree on everything? Yes or no? In this auditorium, do we all agree on everything? Most of us think yes. I can't hear you. Uh, Do we all agree on everything? Tell me, please. No, we don't. (laughs) We don't. There's probably a lot of things we don't agree about. Okay? But there are some wonderful things. In fact, the most important things in life that we do agree on. We don't, all, we don't all agree on everything. But a church that is living up to the gospel, a church that is magnifying Jesus Christ, is standing in one spirit. Look at verse 27. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now what does that look like? That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. And here's what he says, That ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, repeatedly, and it kind of jumps off the page at the end of verse number 27 there, Paul's expectation, his expectation of the and, and his hope for the church at Philippi was that, was that they would stand together in one spirit. And the basis for this whole plea is the fact that there was a war on in, in Paul's day. The saints, what was the war? The saints were engaged in a great conflict. Back in verse 28, Paul told them that the battle is with their adversaries. Down in verse 28, he tells them it's with their adversaries. In verse number 30, he tells them that they're engaged in the same conflict that they had seen him going through. Well, Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. 1 Thessalonians tells us in chapter 2 and verse 4, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel... Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. And Paul and the gospel in his day had enemies. And we have been entrusted with the gospel today, and the gospel still has enemies today. In verse 7, Paul talked about the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In verse number 12, he wanted the church to know how its suffering had furthered the gospel. And now in verse 27, he pleads with the church at Philippi to live as it becometh the gospel. And so there's a war on. There's an attack on the truth. There's an attack against the gospel. And what are we to do? Well, he tells us a couple of things in this passage. Stand fast is one of the things he tells us to do. Stand fast. In 1959, a Bible teacher by the name of Dr. Lehman Strauss said this, quote, Our ecumenical times do not allow us to stand for much of anything, lest we offend others who do not agree with us. We have been taught that to win friends and influence people, we ought not to be dogmatic and unbending. And yet Paul says to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind. The word stand fast, uh, stako, is the Greek word. It means to be stationary. Or to persevere. It literally means to be at a post in a war, a time of war. 
And the word was often used to describe a soldier who would not move from his post. Would we consider that man to be a good soldier or a bad soldier? We would think of him as a good soldier. He wouldn't leave his post. He was faithful. He did his job. And so to apply it to us this morning, the truth would be this. If your doctrine, if you're believing the truth, if you have the gospel, if you know the truth, then hold on to it. If your testimony is exalting the gospel of Jesus Christ, then stay there. Don't stop. If the way you're living your life, if, the, if your conversation, the way that you're living your life is bringing glory to the Lord, and I, I don't mean just what others can see, but what God knows to be true deep within you, if that is, if the way you're living your life is pleasing to the Lord, then stay there and keep doing that. Stand fast. Don't compromise with error. Don't compromise with sin. Don't surrender the testimony of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't move from the doctrine and conduct that exalts the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul had in mind things all connected to the faith of the gospel. Perhaps he was thinking about resisting the devil. Maybe he was thinking about resisting temptation and standing fast against temptation. And we all are tempted. Maybe he was thinking about standing fast against corruption in doctrine, but also practically in, in our personal lives. And the, and the metaphors, the military metaphor, uh, is that of holding a critical position while under tremendous attack. And I'll tell you this morning, you're holding a critical position, church. You are holding a critical position. And you need to stand fast. And where we are wrong, may we change in submission to the word of God. And where we are right, may we stand fast, not arrogantly, but humbly, knowing that anybody else can hold that position too by the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, why, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, it's our responsibility by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the Word of God to hold the position, and the position is that of Christ-likeness. It's a position of humility. It's a position of the fear of the Lord. It's a position of submission to the will of the Father. It's a position of godliness and Christ-likeness. It's a position of magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ in the day in which we live. That's the position. Don't give up the position. Stand fast. It's a position of humility. It's not a position of arrogance at all, is it? There's no room for arrogance in that position. Stand fast, and he says, in one spirit. And notice the lowercase s in the word spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. He's simply referring to being unified. You as a congregation, Church of Philippi, stand fast in one spirit. In other words, this this whole purpose of magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ is, is the goal for every single one of us. Every one of us, this is the goal. Now, we know that's the Holy Spirit that gives unity. So though we come from different backgrounds, though we have different amounts of money, though we have, we're different ages, and we have different weights, right? Um, though we have different amounts of understanding of the scripture, we all who are saved, we all have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. And so from our different perspectives and different places in life that where God has placed us, the Holy Spirit is all leading us to one thing. And that is this, to magnify. Lord Jesus Christ. And keep in mind that illustration of one of my little kids 
with a magnifying glass, looking down at maybe a little bug. And you look at the bug and he looks cute. But when you put the magnifying glass there, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I'm glad that thing is small. He would eat me in a heartbeat. Now, the opposite is true for Christ. When he is magnified, I didn't know. I didn't know who God was until I realized who Christ is. He is holy, but he is loving. He is just, but he is gracious. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is good. He is powerful. He is all-powerful. This is who God is. Our world needs to see Christ. And God's method for the world seeing Christ is you. And it's me. It's not. It's not. God's method for the world seeing Christ is not sermons preached. Though they could see Christ in that, but that's not the method. It's you preaching the gospel by the way that you live your lives throughout the week. It's us preaching the gospel throughout the week by how we communicate on social media and others who see that. There are times where we need to not speak so that Christ is magnified. And there are other times where we must speak So that Christ is magnified. But the goal is the same. That Christ would be magnified. That the gospel would be proclaimed. That others might be able to understand. You mean to tell me that your sins have been taken away because Christ was buried? Yes. You mean to tell me that that, that, uh, in his death, You died. Your old man died. So you don't have to sin. You're not. A, you don't have to sin anymore because I still have to sin. I, I'm. A, I'm. In, I'm a slave to sin. An unsaved person would have to be honest about that. But you don't, because you believed in Christ. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. I'm not a slave anymore, and you don't have to be either. And my sins have been taken away, and I can live to glorify God, my Creator, and you can too if you'll believe upon Him. You see, this is the gospel. And notice, secondly, that a church that is living up to the gospel, a church that is magnifying Jesus Christ, is striving together. Look at verse 27. He says that ye, the latter part, he says that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving. It has the idea of some work that has to be done. An athletic team has to work together to accomplish anything. You can have the most talented athletes on a team. They can all wear the same jersey, but not be a team. We understand that. They can be all in it for themselves. They want the glory individually. And boy, those teams are not enjoyable to watch. And it doesn't take long before the ownership disbands them, because frankly, They're a waste of time. Nobody wants to watch them. They don't accomplish anything. It's a a wonderful thing when I can get Ian out there and William out there, and sometimes the whole family's out there, and we're working on a project together. We're all all sweating. We're all working, and it's dirty and sometimes grimy, but we work together, and we we accomplish something. And what is it that that God wants all of us to be striving together for? He says at the end of verse 27, it's the faith of the gospel. So the governor came out on Friday, I think, with a new executive order or something like that. and Some new requirements, different laws. Some of us would agree with what she's doing. Others of us would not. And I will say this. Who cares? 
Because what God has set before us to do is magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that, does that make sense? Now, it's not that I don't care, because I'm a citizen of this country and this state, too. I do care. In fact, to be transparent, I probably care too much. But this passage reminds me of where my citizenship is and what my ultimate purpose and ultimate goal should be. And that is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how I respond to what I may agree with or may not agree with. And you, you say, Pastor, I really want to know what you don't agree with. Go on, tell us. I'm not going to. Because it really doesn't matter. Now, what is being done matters. But there is eternal things at stake. And how we navigate the temporal things influences the eternal things. Rewards can be lost. Eternal rewards can be lost by how I, by the attitude I have living in a time that is temporal. This world is going to pass away. This government is going to pass away. This body is going to pass away. But my soul and spirit is going to live for all of eternity, and he's going to give me a new body. And I need to live to the glory of God today. In church, this is what we need to do. Our attitudes, they need to be brought into check by the Holy Spirit of God. It needs to happen. And Paul, he's expecting this. He's hoping that the church at Philippi would strive together, not strive against one another, but together for the faith of the gospel. And the word where he talks about striving together, it it means to wrestle in company with. In other words, not to wrestle against one another, but to wrestle in company with, to seek something jointly, to labor with, to strive together for. And throughout the book of Philippians, Paul addressed the need for unity. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He's not talking about automobile preferences. I'm a Ford guy. I'm a Chevy guy. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about who you root for in professional sports. You know, I, I root for the Tigers. Or I root for the Lions. I don't do that. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about my take on masks. Right? It saddens my heart when I watch God's people quarreling. Shouldn't be that way. Shouldn't be that way. You have a higher calling. I have a higher calling. And by the way, I love the 9 o'clock service. There's such a sweet spirit amongst you. And the sweet spirit is this. You know, if, if you think you ought to wear a mask, wear a mask. If, and if for those who don't, that's okay, that's fine. But there's, a, there's a, a preferring one another. That's what needs to be there. It needs to be within our church. It really does. Look at chapter 3 in Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 16. He says this, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, we've already arrived at this, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. And Paul wasn't talking about uniformity, he was talking about unity. In other words, we don't all have to wear the same things to be unified. We don't all have to wear the same things to be united. We don't all have to even think all the same thoughts. Because we're all at different places in our spiritual walk and growth with God. We're all different people. That's the fact of life. And yet the beautiful thing is is that God can take a group of people who are so diverse and he he can unite us uh, around one thing, about one person, around one person who is the Lord Jesus Christ who is selfless and sacrificial. And he can use such a diverse group of people to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. 
That's a miracle. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Here he just calls out a couple of ladies because they weren't being, they didn't have unity. He says, I beseech Eudeus and Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Stop it, ladies. <laughs> and they get called out. It's recorded for us eternally in the word of God. Okay, Whew. glad that wasn't you or me, right? It could have been had we lived during that time. Uh, but it's not, thankfully. Why, why did Paul address the need for unity here Be, throughout the, this book, this small book, this small epistle? Why? Because they were struggling to maintain unity. And all throughout the New Testament, we find the unity of the local church was encouraged. I wanted to look at these scriptures, but I'm not going to have time to do it. In Romans 12, Paul, or Paul talks to the church at Rome about unity. And again, to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, in 2 Corinthians, he writes to the church at Corinth. And then Ephesians chapter 4. And then in 1 Peter, Peter writes to these believers. And the truth is, is that far too often believers strive against one another rather than against the enemy. Sin. Sin can rob a church of unity. And what unifies a church? Well, there are two answers from our text. One is a common goal, and that's the magnification of Jesus Christ. Primary, the gospel. That's what magnifies, that's what makes Jesus different. Not only was he God and man in one, and there's nobody else who's ever been that or will be that. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and burial and resurrection, and it's that, the gospel of Christ, that we seek to live up to. And we can live up to by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death. And he can conquer, and he is conquering, and we can see this in our own lives on a daily basis where he conquers again and again this old man and allows us to live unto righteousness and the glory of God. I don't have to say what came to my mind. He'll even begin to change the way that I think. I don't have to respond. I don't have to do that. What is that? That is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ again and again, us being raised to walk in newness of life. We're reminded of his resurrection again and again. There's a common goal. The gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection. In that Jesus died, I am dead to sin. In that Jesus was buried, my sins have been taken away. And in that Jesus rose from the dead, I have eternal life to live for God and not to live for sin anymore. In, in other words, I'm no longer in bondage to sin. I'll never be judged for my sin. And in Christ, I can please God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And this world needs to, needs to hear the gospel. And they need to see the gospel in the day which we live. Not just another segment of our population who has a strong opinion. We all have them. And some of those opinions are right. But I sure hope that the world in which we're living is seeing Christ magnified more than they're hearing our opinions about temporal matters. And it's not that those matters aren't important. I hope you understand what I'm saying to you. But those temporal matters are not nearly as important as that which is eternal the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to end with one thought, and it's not that encouraging. Are you ready? So a church that is magnifying Christ is standing in one spirit. They're striving together for the faith of the gospel, and very quickly they will suffer for his sake. It's in the passage. Look at it there in verse 29. He says this, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul's writing from a, Roman, from a Roman prison. He says, I want you to know something. If you're going to stand for the gospel, you're going to suffer. 
you're going to suffer. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? To his disciples, they hated me and they're going to hate you too because you're my followers. We want so badly to be loved. We want so badly to be accepted. I think we want something that isn't going to happen. That by some biblical, many biblical principles that the world will just embrace them little by little and will turn this whole world into a utopia. It's not going to happen. There's always been a battle against good and evil. This world is the kingdom of the evil one. It's going to need to be conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he will set up a kingdom and he will rule and reign and ultimately, he will rule and reign forever and ever. I think as Michiganders and growing up in Flushing, some of the greatest suffering many of us have had to endure, and I'm joking to a degree here, is that the thermostat in the auditorium isn't set to the right temperature. It's too cold. No need to amen, Mrs. Jennings. Or it's too hot, Right? Many of us have not had to endure much suffering at all for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the truth is that God's people will endure suffering. To stand fast in one spirit, to strive together for the faith of the gospel, to suffer for Christ's sake has always been the experience of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and magnify him. May we leave this morning with this idea in our minds. God, help me to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I get into a conversation with someone about our governor, if I get into a conversation about, with someone about our president, or if I get into a conversation with someone about a, a certain matter uh, of some kind, Lord, help me to speak the truth. Help me to be genuine. Help me to be sincere. Um, help me to know my facts as I think, believe them to be. But Lord, more than any of that, may Christ be seen in me. May he be magnified. That's what I want. And that's what Paul wrote to this church about. Let's all stand to our feet. And we're going to sing, Be Strong in the Lord, and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we sing now. May we be strong in you. Lord, may your Holy Spirit and your word guide us in these days. Lord, thank you for having us here on this earth during this time. Lord, some of us, you've kept us here. You knew what was coming. And Lord, I pray that we would not go through life as, as if all is lost, but that we would rejoice in you. We, want, we understand we're living on this earth, an earth cursed by sin and uh, an imperfect place. So help us to love our country. Help us to love one another. Help us to love mankind as you love them and desire that all men be saved. But Lord, I pray that we would Magnify Jesus Christ. May it be true, I pray in Christ's name.